Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Theralogix for balancing hormone levels. Theralogix also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Theralogix products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Theralogix, supplements from science. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am joined with my amazing co-host, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi! And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Bye! And we are blessed to have an amazing guest today, Dr. Florencia Halperin. How are you doing today? Hi, thank you for having me. Good, good. We, she is the CMO or Chief Medical Officer of Form Health. She is a board-certified endocrinologist and obesity medicine specialist. And so we're going to talk all about obesity medicine in a little bit. But I understand, Florencia, that you have like a major milestone in your life that happened a little bit later than most of us. That's right. That's right. So when uh, high school came around, I never got my driver's license. I had a June birthday. So all my friends junior year learned to drive first and were driving me around. So I didn't really... (laughs) have any reason to do it. Um, I went to college in the city. So I didn't, I didn't. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Boston. Okay. So Um, there's good public transportation in that city. My family lived right on what we call the T. And it wasn't until I was a medical student that I was like, you know, I should learn to drive because I made (laughs) at 4 a.m. But I Still didn't do it because after two driving lessons, I was driving um, someone else's car and I had a little oops with another car. So that derailed me for a while. So I didn't end up getting my driver's license until I was 32. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So I'm driving only my second car in my whole life. (laughs) That is hilarious. You know, my grandmother um, actually didn't learn how to drive until my father, her son-in-law, taught her how to drive when she was in her 60s. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, Florencia, you are you're kind of relating the trend because apparently my my kids know how to drive. But apparently, like now where there's good public transportation and there's Uber and there's Lyft, and plus it's costly to drive and insurance. So a lot of kids now are not getting their driver's license. I mean, I could not wait to get my driver's license. I, I was like counting down the yeah. days until I turned 16. But it's not, not the case for all teenagers right now. A lot of them are kind of waiting because there's not a real good impetus to drive. And I think with the roads getting so much more crowded, too. It's scarier to drive. I know I'm scared, more scared to drive than I used to be. And so you just but set the trend ahead of everybody. I know. But the one good thing is, and I was just um, reading about this, um, the rates of drinking and driving in teenagers are very low compared to really? when we were younger. 
us, they call Uber. Yeah, that's, that's right. fabulous. Yeah. That's so that's good. still reminding. <laughs> I honestly would be completely happy if I never had to drive again. So. Yeah. yeah. I don't want driving something. Unfortunately, I live in Texas and we don't have great public transportation. So yes. I, I get to live vicariously when I go on vacation. When well, uh, now I drive a minivan and drive my three kids around everywhere. So yeah, my when you're three kids, you have to be able to drive. <laughs> When I when I counsel patients, I tell them a lot of the things that we do that, yes, there's risks, you know, ABCD, whatever it is, but that it's riskier for them to get in the car and drive to the clinic than it is to actually do the things we're doing at the clinic. (laughs) Excellent point. That is true. That is true. All right. Well, let's do a question real quick. So our question for today is, hi, docs. I'm a 29-year-old female who just completed her second embryo transfer of two untested 4AA embryos. When our embryologist warmed the first embryo, it had collapsed and not re-expanded, so they warmed a second one. Moments before our transfer, I was given the last-minute option to transfer both as opposed to discarding the collapsed one. I felt terribly guilty throwing one away, so we opted for both. Our doctor gave us a 5% chance of twins. Now my 14-day post-transfer beta is 2908, and I'm freaking out that both may have implanted. So what's the real skinny on collapsed and non-expanding embryos? And is it possible that the odds of twins was way more than 5%? You know, back in the day when we first started doing transfers, before we did genetic testing, probably not in 20, well, actually, even in 29-year-olds, sometimes we'd transfer too. If, it, if they had a failed transfer, sometimes the second transfer, we'd transfer too because we didn't really know any better. And and so that was a fairly, fairly common thing back then. And we really didn't get tw- twins very often. And, you know, sometimes too, when you thaw one embryo, sort of, you know, kind of taken up for why your clinic did what it did. When you thaw an embryo initially, if it doesn't look very good, then you have a limited time to go, oh gosh, should we thaw another embryo or should we go ahead and just transfer this one that maybe doesn't look so great and maybe not so, maybe may not do too well in you. And so I think, you know, to their credit, they wanted you to have an embryo to transfer and they thawed the second one. And then I think both of them probably continued to do a lot better than they expected, or at least the first one did. And so, you know, I don't think it was wrong to transfer two untested embryos. It's generally not the first thing you would choose to do now in this day and age. Um, but they were untested. And, you know, I think they had a reason to thaw a second one. And, you know, personally, I would hate to discard one that might do well. So hard to say if you're going to have twins or not. Time will tell, but I don't think they necessarily did anything wrong. So grading makes a huge difference. And there is a there is a huge difference. Let me rephrase that. Grading has huge differences between clinics. Let me put it that way. Because even though technically, like we can all look at this is an A versus a B versus a C, it's all in the eye of the beholder. And so <laughs> when my clinic gets A or B or whatever embryos, I know exactly what they mean. But when I get embryos in from another clinic, I have no idea what that means because I have thought so-called AA embryos that have been absolutely terrible and B embryos that have been really great. And what something looked like going into the thaw is not necessarily what it's going to look like coming out of the thaw. And when you will look at the when you look at the initial appearance of the embryo straight out of the thaw, you really need several hours to know, okay, is this embryo good, bad, indifferent? And so, you know, Abby's right. There's only so many hours that we have before you kind of got to make a decision. And, uh, and so a lot of that will depend on the protocol of your clinic. If they were two tested embryos, I would say at least 
with our clinic's experience, that's like a 50-50 shot of getting twins. However, when they are untested, it's anybody's guess. And, and your clinic's going to know a lot more of the details about not just collapse or not, but is there fragmentation? Is there debris? Is there separation? Is there unevenness? Is there all these other really kind of intangible things that are going to have an impact? And another thing to think in mind is that HCG levels in different pregnancies can aren't necessarily reflective of multiples. So, I mean, yeah, an initial H, so your HCG on 14 days post transfer, that's really, you know, four days after we normally do our first HCG level. So if you had an initial HCG level of you know, six to 700, yeah, I'd be like, woohoo, that's a great strong HCG level. But that doubling twice gets you pretty close to where you are. So I mean, sometimes higher HCG levels can be indicative of multiples, but it's not always. So it, it's something that we we do have to take with a grain of salt. I mean, there, there are definitely people who I'm like, I, they have really big HCG levels and I go in you know, being like, mm, am I going to have to change the ultrasound transducer to have two? <laughs> because it does occasionally happen. But sometimes even with those lower HCG levels, I end up with twins. And then I go in with the person who I thought was going to have them and they have a singleton. And yeah. so um, don't don't read too. I know we, we live and die by numbers in, in this field, but um, don't don't read too much into them. Like it's a great solid you know, going forward number, but don't don't worry too much about multiples at this point is what I would think. So you got a ways to go. So most importantly, the HCG is positive. So I hope all goes well. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we are going to turn to Florencia. And our topic for today is talking about um, weight loss medications and how they can be used, um, either new or old medications, when we're either preparing for pregnancy or going into pregnancy. And, and what are some of the new things that have come out? So, Florencia, why don't you kind of introduce the subject of, of the why we might use weight loss medications going into preparing for pregnancy. And Florencia, we're super excited to have you here because all of us have like a list that's super long of, well, what about this? What about this? And what do you think about that? And how about this medication? And so um, be prepared for us to interrupt you a lot of go, well, what about this? And how about that? And can you tell us about that? <laughs> so I apologize in advance because I'm kind of excited. Um, and so anyway, I'll be quiet and let you talk. Awesome. I'm excited too. Well, just to kind of take a step back and put into context um, these weight loss medications, or often they're called anti-obesity medications, because importantly, they are used to treat obesity. So this is not for people who want to lose a few pounds after a pregnancy or something like that, but are at a normal weight. So we know today, based on a lot of science, that obesity is a medical condition, a disease, and we know that our body and our brain regulates our weight. So there are a lot of different reasons why someone may come to, you know, um, live at a specific weight, and all of that has to do with their biology. So we inherit genes from our parents, and we know that hundreds of genes and how we sort of stack up with each one ends up determining our genetic predisposition to gain weight over time. And then you, you know, take kind of all of the environment and all the food that's available today, and that interacts with our genes and also with our biology. So we know that if our mom had obesity, we're more likely to develop obesity um, due to the genetics and also a variety of other factors. And it's very interesting, but our brain really regulates our weight. 
So our brain can drive eating behaviors. It can tell us when to stop. It can drive burning more calories or fewer calories. And so there are these very complex and elegant interactions between our gut, our fat tissue, our muscle, and our brain. And all of this determines our weight. Hmm. So coming to kind of the weight loss medications or anti-obesity medications, understanding all of this biology and all of the ways in which our bodies regulate weight has allowed us to um, kind of find ways in which we can develop drugs to change those things. So anti-obesity medications, for the most part, work in the brain and change how hungry we are, how quickly we stop eating, the sort of foods that we crave and things like that, because they talk to the parts of the brain that regulate um, these mechanisms. So that's that's a very different approach to it than I think most of us think, because I think at least in popular culture, there's if you are overweight, it's because you're lazy and you're not getting up and exercising. And if you are overweight obese, whatever it may be, it's because you have no self-control and you're eating a breakfast of Twinkies, a lunch of apple pie and dinners of ice cream sundaes with dessert of, you know, extra whipped cream and fudge sauce. Like it is completely because someone has all of these moral failings and they have no self-control and that's why they're overweight, obese, what have it. And so what you're describing is something very different than that. Yes. So fortunately, science now helps us get away from, you know, decades and probably centuries of thinking that way. Mm -hmm. And what's, you know, I'm glad that you're bringing this up because what's really, really hard is the lived experience for people who have obesity where they are blamed and it is thought of in this way, even within the medical community. So what we hear from our patients are, that, you know, there's so much shame, there's so much bias, there's a lot of documentation about this, a lot of statistics. But even in the setting of going to a doctor's office, people experience these kinds of, you know, very difficult interactions where they're blamed and um, shamed for their behaviors when we know that this is really a lot about the biological determinants um, of of their weight. And so it's very important when we treat people who have obesity and, you know, also infertility, because I think these things are sort of related, um, that we come at it from a very sort of non-judgmental um, perspective and really educate both the mm -hmm. people with obesity, but also the larger community and the medical community that, you know, the new science, what we understand today and why it makes sense that we can develop drugs to treat obesity. Because if you think about it, if it was a moral failing and, you know, a lack of willpower and self-control, then why would a medication help with that? Right. I have to say, I love I love learning the science behind what are the chemicals that are making yeah feel full or a hunger for certain types of foods or uh, all those types of different, me you know, mechanisms, because I mean, obesity is one of those hard things. I mean, it's hard as a physician to talk to, because first of all, just in general culture, you're, you're generally taught as a small child, do not comment on anybody's weight. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then as a physician, you know, it's a medical issue and you want to talk about it, but being able to bring the science and it, it's one of those things that I'm like, I'm a fix it person. So 
you know, I, I'm like, why address something I can't do anything about? But if there's actually something that's not working correctly, it, it's great for us to be able to say, hey, listen, we have something that's going to potentially actually make a difference in in how the chemistry. I mean, this is this is no different than than dealing with depression. Exactly. And I think depression is actually a great parallel because also for decades, people were sort of blamed for their mental health. Like, mm-hmm. why? Yeah. Why can't you be a glass half empty or a glass half full kind cool. of person? And then then we sort of learned about all of the neurotransmitters and all the ways this is. And so it is, it's very similar. And by the way, having the conversation with your patients really helps because evidence suggests that the more um, people talk are able to talk to their physicians and get medical counseling, that weight is a health issue and that um, there are things that you can do to treat obesity, the more that somebody is likely to be able to successfully lose weight. So, so can, can you tell us a little, little bit of difference, difference between the older obesity drugs, used for obesity, and, and the newer drugs? Because I think a lot of us are somewhat familiar with the older ones, but the new ones have really just kind of come on the scene. And I don't really know a whole lot about them and sort of have learned from my patients and just learned from things I've seen in the news media. Yes, this has been a very hot topic. So anti-obesity medications have been around for a very long time, but nobody knew a lot about them, including physicians. And (laughs) it's been a difficult history because there have been several medications, not just one, but several that were approved by the FDA and then taken off the market because of severe side effects or safety concerns. And so that created a lot of, of worry and in the medical community and sort of um, uh, reticence to prescribe it, which I totally understand. And for a long time, there were no new medications. There was really no um, investigation and research into new treatments for obesity. But then fortunately, over the last 10 to 15 years, in 2013, obesity was officially deemed a disease by the American Medical Association. Hmm. And all of the science kind of coming together and really helping us understand how the brain regulates weight led to a lot of research and and investigation. And now there's so much research in this field and we've had um, a lot of advancement. So the older drugs also worked in the brain, but they only caused about 5% weight loss. So when you compared a group of people that got a lifestyle intervention, so healthy nutrition and physical activity and behavior change to a group of people who got all of that plus a specific medication, the difference between the average weight loss would have been, you know, about five, maybe 8% more in the people got the drug. So it is significant. And by the way, that makes a big difference, for example, for regulating periods and for that can make a big difference. But it wasn't, you know, a a very significant amount of weight loss for someone who has more weight than that to lose. And then what has happened over the last um, about five years is that we have discovered new drug targets and a new class of medications has come on the scene. And these are the ones that are talked about all the time. <laughs> so this the new class of medication that's on the news a lot, you may have heard the, the names Ozempic and Wigovi. So let me talk a little bit about this class of medication. So these are GLP-1 receptor agonists. GLP-1 is a hormone that we all make. We make it in our gut and it talks to our pancreas and it talks to our brain. And in the pancreas, it helps us regulate blood sugar. So they were initially developed for type 2 diabetes. 
But then it turns out the effects on the brain are to suppress appetite and to help us stop eating sooner. So it turned out people lost weight and they were studied in people who um, have weight to lose, have obesity, but don't have diabetes. And it turns out they can safely help people lose weight. So we had an initial um, drug of this kind. We've had it for um, close to 10 to eight years or so. And then more recently, about two years ago, uh, Wagovi was approved for, for obesity. Wagovi is the same molecule as Ozempic, but it's the brand that's approved for obesity. And then very hot off the press just last week, another medication was approved by the FDA. It's called ZepBound. It's not in pharmacies yet, but this one is actually a GLP-1 receptor agonist and it also has a different hormone um, agonist in there too. So it's a dual agonist, they call it GLP-1 and GIP, which is a different hormone that also helps to regulate our weight. What's really interesting and fascinating about this progression of these and these newer drugs is that they cause a lot more weight loss than the older drugs. So we talked about a five, maybe 8% weight loss before. With Wagovi, there was great excitement because the average weight loss in trials was about 16%. And with this newer one, it's in the low 20s percent. So we are seeing dramatically more impactful medications as the science gets better and better. Did you know 64% of employers added a family building benefit because an employee asked for it? No matter the size of your organization, you have the power to make a difference for current and future employees. Want to know where to start? Progeny is here to help. Progeny is a family building benefits company that has been helping employees and employers advocate for increased access to effective and equitable fertility and family building benefits for over seven years. To get the resources that can help you make a difference, visit progyny.com forward slash talk to HR today. What happens when people lose weight with these medications? Um, Do they just keep the weight off or do they need to keep on doing something? Can it just be managed by diet and exercise after that? Or or is this kind of, you're going to need maintenance medicine theoretically? Well, really important question that will help us tie back into women seeking fertility and the use of this medication. So the medication, the best science that we know today is that the medications work while you take them. And this is true for any weight loss medication, but it's also true for most medications that people take. Like if you have a thyroid condition and you have to take a thyroid medication or high cholesterol or high blood pressure, if you stop taking the medication, you go back to making high levels of cholesterol or or have high blood pressure. So the science that we have, which puts people on medication and then takes it away, but continues to follow them, shows that people regain the weight. And so what we think of is this is a chronic and relapsing condition. So it is a chronic condition and the weight comes back when you lose weight. And so you need a chronic model of treatment um, to take care of it. But one thing I also really want to emphasize is that these medications should not be thought of as like something you get a prescription for and you go on your merry way. It is so important to combine healthy nutrition, as much physical activity as a person can do, behavior change. We want to give people all of the tools to to um, 
you know, be able to to lose weight and to be able to sustain the weight. And for a lot of reasons, including that it helps to lose weight when you're doing all those healthy things and that a healthy diet is good for you, even if you don't lose weight and improves high blood pressure and risk of diabetes and all of that. But also because you don't want to lose the good tissues. You don't want to lose muscle with these And this is something also that's been on the news a lot that you can reduce muscle loss. That's true with any kind of weight loss. Mm -hmm. But we want to make really sure that you're optimizing your nutrition, that you're eating the things that you want to be, you know, that are good for us, that we're eating enough. And so we always recommend, and this is how our program works, is people work with a registered dietitian along with a physician who may be prescribing the medication and really focusing on your health and are your health markers improving? Are your blood sugars improving, your cholesterol, your blood pressure, all of those things? Yes. How does this fit with women who are trying to get pregnant? Because, you know, I think a lot of patients have heard that it can be triatogenic and they shouldn't take it while they're trying to get pregnant. So what do do you recommend for women who want to get pregnant that are heavy? Yes. So this is such a good question. And the honest answer is we need a lot more research to understand. But we're very excited about the kind of weight loss that these medications can help women achieve because you, you know more, you know, more than anybody that most centers across the country do have a BMI cutoff for people going through assisted reproduction, IVF, et cetera. And so when a woman is told, you know, it's not, you know, we, we can't provide fertility treatment until you get below a BMI of 40 or something like that. And it's a woman who's had maybe, you know, years, if not decades of struggling with her weight and she's mm-hmm. really trying yeah. everything else. Look, how is she going to get to that weight that, you know, is going to permit her to have a pregnancy? Now, we do believe that there are many ways to do it. And we also really provide kind of like the best, most evidence space uh, approach to a healthy diet and to increasing physical activity and to behavior change. And for some people that can work, especially when they really do it with experts in the most science-backed way. But for other people, it just doesn't because the biology that drives their weight is too strong. You can put mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah. And not really be able to do it, you know, with without the assistance of the change in biology that medications can can provide. And it doesn't have to be this new class of medication, the old medications, we sometimes can really leverage them. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But it is such a great way to think about it. However, when we start this process, we have to have a very honest conversation with the patient. Because for example, with Govi, which we talked about as one of the newest this is the one that causes on average about 16% weight loss. It, the label, the FDA label says you have to be off it for two months before you become pregnant. So you have to do a washout. It's a long acting medication. You have to do a washout. That means we need a certain amount of time to go on a well, you know, a wellness, um, weight loss journey and, um, lose the weight that the person wants to lose. But then we also have to stop the medication. And that could be sort of a risky time for weight regain and everything else. And that's when we have to be using all of those other tools that they, you know, hopefully are learning along the way to really keep the weight down until the pregnancy happens. With other drugs, that period of washout isn't as long. Yeah. Lindsay, one thing I wanted to um, comment to our listeners is that most of our clinics do have um, 
BMI limits, especially for egg retrievals. And sometimes our patients don't really understand why that exists. And mm-hmm. the, the fact of the matter is, is when we're doing ultrasounds on women who have higher BMIs, whether it's 40, 45, 60, above 60, each of those, it is going to be harder and harder for us to see exactly what we're aiming for. Okay. And your ovaries are actually very close to some very large and very important blood vessels that we <laughs> scary blood vessels <laughs> that we definitely don't want to involve. And so when it, when it comes to safety versus baby making, safety wins 365 days a year, always. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that's really important. And the other thing to understand is when you're when you're trying to lose this weight going for going into pregnancy, know that not only is it going to help you have better chances of avoiding things like diabetes in pregnancy and blood pressure issue complications and issues healing from a C-section, if that were to be how you ended up having to deliver. But actually, while you're pregnant, if you are obese, you are actually turning on or off genes that are going to potentially increase the risk of your child having struggles with obesity in their life. So it's not only important for your health and well-being, but also for the health and well-being of your your baby-to-be. That's there's right. Another, I was going to say, there's another component of it from the fertility center side in that most of us are working in outpatient surgery centers because... Yeah. We really need to, if you have any numbers of eggs at all, we really need to put you to sleep to do this because we need you to be still so that when we go in, we're not damaging any of those blood vessels that we talked about. And in order to do that, we need to be able to put you to sleep comfortably. And most of us don't need to use, you know, intubation where we put the tube down your throat and attach it to the breathing machines and all of that. For the most part, we can give you pretty mild medications that are way less intense than full general anesthesia. And when you have those, you are breathing on your own. Well, if you are carrying increased mass on your chest in particular, my my size, you know, double, triple G's, K's, M's, bra sizes, like this is... <laughs> this is where it makes an impact because you have all this extra weight on your chest that as you move it up and down, it moves your abdomen, i.e. your ovaries up and down, and it's all of a sudden hitting a moving target. And that is highly displeasing as as a physician because it's scary. Like we don't, we don't like doing this. Our goal is to make your life wonderful and better, not, not a disaster. And so that's the other thing that we focus on because in these outpatient centers, like there's, that's the other kind of safety limit that we're working on. Well, another thing I'll add to that too, because you don't have a tube down your throat, your airway is not protected. So if you you know, heavier people are just more likely to have reflux and things like that that can mm-hmm. then get down into their lung and cause an issue. So that's another reason because we don't do these in hospitals with you intubated, your airways just not as protected and you have more risk of problems with your lungs. Well, while we're talking about airways, Florencia, I know that a lot of our patients sometimes need to have surgeries before they go through their IVF procedures. So they need to have polyps removed from their uterus. Maybe they might need to have a hydrosalpinx or a swollen fallopian tube removed, different things like this. Um, are there any issues that we need to be aware of if, if one of our patients is working on their weight loss and we're getting ready for things, but they may be using one of these GLP-1 um, medications? Yes, that's an excellent point because the GLP-1 type of medications slow the movement of the gut. And so, you know, everybody's asked to fast before they have these kinds of medications 
um, procedure so they don't have reflux and things don't come up from their stomach. And so it has come to light that people need to stop the medications before they have procedure so that the um, stomach can really clear out and, you know, in the amount of time that they fast. So how long, some, how long do they need to stop for? Yes, some of weeks? One of these, these newer medications, um, some of the injections are once per day and some of them are once per week. So depending on which specific agent they should be getting, uh, the the women should be getting specific recommendations from their provider about when they should be stopping it. Um, so that's a really important point. Also, I really want to, it's so, it's so great that you have outlined why the, you know, there is a BMI cutoff for the procedures that you do. And of course, I love your, your focus on safety and, and we have that as well. It's so important. And so one issue that I wanted to really highlight is that we, we want to be really safe for patients as well. And, you know, when someone has been told that they may not be able to get a procedure that they need because of BMI, then they just absolutely want to lose the weight, right? This is like their number one goal. But we have to also be really careful because I don't want to prescribe a medication to anybody if it could be harmful to the fetus. So we have to be really, really candid and transparent with patients to, you know, explain what we talked about that there, we really don't know because these medicines haven't been tested in pregnancy. But I mean, nobody's going to do those studies, I don't think. Those are the, what I think of as the accidental studies of yeah. yes. accidentally whatever. Yes, in the future, we will have enough people who, oops, um, became pregnant. But our goal is really to prevent that from happening and to really give, you know, the two months of washout and do everything safely. But what that means is that if you're, um, if you're undergoing treat, it, it doesn't make sense to be actively, you know, working with a team that's trying to help you get pregnant and taking this medication at the same time. So sometimes we need to to tell women they need to really put, there might need to be contraception. If there's any way that they could become pregnant in whatever they're doing, then we need to be absolutely super safe that that is not going to happen during the time that they're on weight loss medications. When people start these medications, is this something that usually in a couple months they're going to be where they need to be? Or do they need to kind of psychologically kind of prepare themselves that this is this may be a six to 12 month thing. Yes. So that's a really um, great point that I was going to make also is that we do need to think about, you know, a more substantial chunk of time because um, some of the older medications, which are, you know, pill based, you you can just kind of stop them and you don't have a whole two months to wash out, but you also can kind of get up to the full dose very quickly. These newer GLP-1 receptor agonists have side effects, which we can talk a little bit more about. We talked about the stomach emptying a little bit more slowly. And so they generally can cause um, gastrointestinal side effects. They can cause abdominal pain, discomfort. They can cause nausea, vomiting, constipation or diarrhea, all of these kinds of things. And the best way to prevent all of that is to start them slowly and work them up in dose. And so in the way the FDA kind of recommends that they're prescribed in the way that they've been studied, it is quite a long time, months before you're up to the full dose. And of course, at the full dose is when you lose the most weight. 
So it can take quite a while to get on the full dose and then you need some time to lose the weight. It's not overnight. Just a side question. I'm just curious, because you're controlling their glucose so tightly for a few months, how long? So so one of the other holdbacks or setbacks that patients have is we say your hemoglobin A1C has to be 7% or less. And so yeah. how long does it take to be on um, one of those drugs to, to, to lower your hemoglobin A1C? Well, that's a great question. And when people do have to lower their A1C and lower their weight, these are particularly great medications because they will help with both. So for one medication, you get the benefits of both. The blood sugar can come down probably more quickly than the weight, but it again depends on all of the things that the person is going to be engaging in. So in our program, working very closely with a registered dietitian and with someone who, you know, is a physician expert in, in obesity medicine and understands a lot about diabetes and metabolic disease, we will help them with dietary changes and physical activity. Those things also really help to lower the blood sugar. Mm-hmm. So if you do everything together, I mean, it's still going to be months, so not days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll start to see the blood sugars come down and then they want to see, you know, which we usually test about every few months to, to mm-hmm. see it um, can come down. But that that is a group of women for which these medications are particularly helpful. But then we do have to think about a transition plan when they have to come off in preparation for pregnancy. So because these work by limiting hunger and so the associated limiting of intake, do you find that people have some pretty significant nutritional deficiencies? Because even even when you're working with you know a, a registered dietitian who knows exactly what they're doing, there's still the desire of, I don't want to eat. I don't feel good after I eat. I mean, I don't necessarily feel bad, but if I eat any any more than I should, I don't feel good. And so do you find that people have nutritional deficiencies just by default of, you know, they used to eat breakfast every day and now they don't want to. And they used to eat a full lunch and now it's sustain- substantially smaller. Like, how does that work? Yes. Yeah, so that's a great question. And I have to say, for the most part, what people experience is a tremendous relief and benefit because there's um, patients talk a lot about a food noise or food chatter. The the food, their, their way that, um, you know, certain brains are wired, the drive to desire food is very strong. And so people describe kind of like thinking about their next meal or thinking about food that's in, in the room, in the corner, or things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's very distressing. So um, these newer medications are very effective at calming that food noise or that food chatter. And it's a huge relief. But it can happen in some people, not in everybody, but in some people that they their appetite is so suppressed that they even kind of forget to eat. Sometimes we have people set, you know, an alarm to remind them to eat lunch and things like that, because you do want to get basic nutrition. And that's the work with that our patients do with the registered dietitians is so important to make sure that they are getting the basic nutrition that they need, the basic protein, minerals, vitamins, and, you know, all of that. And in particular, particular, it is a very common thing when people lose weight that you can lose muscle mass and you don't want to lose muscle mass. Muscle is the most metabolically active and the healthiest tissue that we have. And so when you lose a significant amount of weight, for example, if you're using one of these newer medications, we want to really try to prevent that. And part of that is making sure you're getting sufficient protein. Part of that is making sure you're getting your physical activity in. 
So the most important thing I think from this question is that we really want people to think of these as serious medications. Like they are wonderful. They're such huge scientific advancements, but you need to work with a, with a physician, a healthcare team that has experience, really understands these medications, is giving you all the tools, is managing the possible side effects, the possible deficiencies, all mm-hmm. of these kinds of things so that you're really doing it in a healthy way. This is all about improving health. We don't want to be taking these medications to then get have, you know, severe problems and, and um, in nutritional deficiencies and loss of muscle mass and things like that. And it's possible to avoid all of that when you do it in the right way, working with the right team. I also want to say that, you know, because I want to give hope, I, I think it's really important when we talk about these medications today to bring in the fact that these newer medications, which are so expensive, sorry, which are so effective are also so expensive. Mm. And this is, you know, a really difficult thing about the time that we're in, that we have so much scientific advancement in the treatment of obesity, but these newer treatments are so expensive. And so not everybody is going to be able to get this kind of medication. Many people don't have coverage for them, and they're honestly prohibitively expensive for anybody. So what I want to be sure that everybody knows is there are these are not the only options. You can be successful if you work with the right you know, science-backed strategies to optimize nutrition and physical activity and behavior modification. And we can also use some of the older medications, which aren't, you know, as expensive. And some of them also um, do not have the kind of two-month washout period for getting pregnant. And so there are options that can be better choices for someone who's in a little bit more of a time-sensitive situation. For example, an older woman who doesn't have time to stop for six to 12 months to go on this kind of medication and to try to get pregnant. So it, on our team, we really use the entire spectrum to try to find the right plan forward for each person. Wow. I think we have learned so much about this new class of medications and who they're good for and and really what to expect, which I think is one of the most important parts of it mm-hmm. is, you know, when, when any of us send, you know, any of our patients who need help, um, you know, to form health or whatever, whoever the endocrinologist or registered dietitian, all these people who are going to be working with our patients to help them achieve their weight goals to really know what to expect and what might be different time courses so everybody can can plan and and have their brain in the right in the right place. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're also very excited to partner with with people like you. I mean, we're going to need to understand more about the best path forward for women who have obesity, who have infertility, who are seeking pregnancy because the reality is we we don't know. We need to study what happens. What happens if you go on one of these medications, you have a really successful weight loss, what happens during the pregnancy, Mm -hmm. you know, um, baby, we need to do a lot more research to understand what really is the best um, path forward. So right now, everybody's working together with the science that we have, you know, with our kind of best judgment. I think one of the things that it's important for patients to realize is that medicine has changed incredibly drastically over the past five years, 10 years, 20 years, and, and beyond. And so 
Where it used to be, you would have a general practitioner who would cover everything or a general OBGYN or, you know, a general surgeon who would cover everything. Now there's all this specialization. And for patients, it can be really aggravating sometimes when, when they hear us as a fertility doctor say, okay, you need to go talk to a high risk OB physician. You yeah. <laughs> need to talk with an anti obesity physician. You need to talk with your internal medicine specialist about all these different problems. Well, part of the reason for that is these fields of medicine are expanding so incredibly rapidly. And there's so many interactions with, with all of our worlds together. It's really helpful to have, have a physician team. I mean, it's not, it's not an accident that all of us have the cell phone numbers of our colleagues just <laughs> programmed in. And so I can easily text this person, that specialist, whomever about, Hey, I'm sending you this person. This is what I'm worried about. Can you, can you help optimize that? Because, you know, I know, I know the basics. I can get you out of a crisis, but, um, but I'm not the best person to make it the optimal. And so that's why we end up referring out and why you may end up seeing a couple of different types of doctors as you're going through this, because we want what's best for you and your baby. And that's not always with just us. It definitely takes a village. It sure does. Out of doubt. All right. Well, Thank you, Florencia, for joining us today. We love having you on. Awesome. We, we always learn so much. Oh, my goodness. Yes. We love having you on. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> thank you. And to our audience, thank you so much for listening. And be sure to tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So follow us, subscribe, and stay updated on all things fertility. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions that you have about infertility. All of our questions will be answered on the uh, on the podcast anonymously, so don't hold back. We also love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking, what you want to hear. We really just like to hear from you. <laughs> and as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice. Thanks for listening to us today. Bye. Bye. Thank you. This episode is supported by Receptiva DX. Getting pregnant isn't always easy, as so many people listening know. Many couples struggle with infertility, and unexplained infertility can be particularly frustrating. Receptiva DX is the only test that can identify endometriosis, progesterone resistance, and endometritis in a single sample, all of which are causes for unexplained infertility and therefore impact success rates of IVF treatments. Receptiva DX includes BCL-6, which is a marker that identifies uterine inflammation, which is most often associated with asymptomatic or silent endometriosis. Learn more at ReceptivaDX.com or download the app Receptiva DX.